0: Because anybody can stop a suicide if you're willing to step out of your comfort zone. But I'm gonna just go ahead and invite uh Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay.
1: Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Welcome back to another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. My name is Jay Schiffman. I am your host. We got a big one this week, not just for the guests, they are pretty incredible, but because of the content that we're covering this week. For those who haven't noticed, this podcast is qualified as explicit on all of your favorite podcast apps, all the all the different ways you listen to the podcast. That is because when I record this, I have to technically qualify it as explicit. And let me tell you why. My podcast host, Anchor, which (laughs) if you don't know that I host with Anchor now, you haven't been hearing the ads. They have been known to... Well, they've been known to remove some some podcasts. They've been known to reach out to some of their podcasters to let them know that they're not following their guidelines for a lot of things that you and I would probably say, well, that's not explicit, that's whatever. The topics that I cover, drug use specifically, but also substance misuse, a lot of the the, the weightier is that a word, heavier <laughs> mental health topics, are seen as explicit. And because of that, I just it's just easier for me to market as explicit. That does mean that I I get turned down by a couple of uh well, there there are places that you can't find the podcast, we'll put it that way. And also some people who may think about advertising on the podcast will say no because it's explicit. That being said, that's not why I do this. And 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 you know, I'm not gonna change what I do to fit their rules. So why am I telling you all this? This week's episode is more explicit than the average, and let me tell you why. The shout-out is by David Munford. David is part of the mental health community on LinkedIn that I am a part of. We are a very supportive and, and wonderful community. His particular story deals with not only alcohol use, but an unhealthy attitude towards porn. And he is, you know, he's not over the top with his descriptions or anything like that. But he does discuss porn. That's just the tip of the iceberg. This week, the interview for the week is a big name, uh, Frank King. Look, I'm not going to go into all the different ways you know him because he does a very funny bit about that when when he introduces himself. But he is the mental health comedian, and uh, he discusses things including. One of his TED talks, which is about the mental health benefits of the orgasm, he discusses his main gig is is suicide awareness and in telling his story around suicide being at that point in his life. so if you listen with kids in the car, I think these are all topics that should be discussed. That being said, they're your kids, so if this is a thing that you do at times, maybe not this episode, you know maybe. Maybe listen to this one when they've gone to bed. I think it's a wonderful episode. I really enjoyed editing this one. I really, Frank's a great guy. We've chatted multiple times now, and I he cares so much about this. We get into the, about the last 10 minutes of our interview, and I know that that's not not great interview tactics to put the the real heavy stuff at the end, especially if that's the stuff you want people to hear, and that is the case here. I want you all to hear what he says about suicide. He cares so much about this that he gives out his personal cell phone number at the end of it, and he wants people to call him. He says it. He says it on there. He says, if you're just, you need someone to talk to, here's my number. So stick around for the last 10 minutes or so. I, look, like I say all the time, I can see the numbers. I can see a lot of the data. I'm really lucky that most of y'all, my, my completion rate is very high. Uh, so thank you for that. But for those of you who do sometimes check out earlier, skip ahead. I'm I'm telling you, if you are interested more in the topic and less in the laughing, I mean, we laugh throughout the entire thing, and I say that on the way in. You're gonna laugh more in this episode with Frank than you have in any other episode of the podcast. He is hilarious at times, and 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 I don't. Use, sometimes I edit out me, you know, when when the when the guest is talking. I didn't do that this episode because I want you all to hear me laughing as Frank talks. But if you're more interested in the topic, in the subject matter, skip ahead to the last 10 minutes, because it's so important. And man, Frank just, he knows how to go there. He's a perfect, perfect performer. And uh, he takes you there with him. Uh, I really look up to him in that that way. So thank you all for coming along. Enjoy the episode. Keep reaching out. By the way, I'm going to say that every episode, but especially this one, because David did that. David reached out. We got connected on LinkedIn and he went, hey, I heard that you are looking for people. Here's my story. I said, yo, save it. Let's get on Zoom. So keep reaching out and enjoy this interview.
2: Hi, I'm David. Uh, Grew up in a very strong Christian home. Was involved in ministry for a lot of years in all forms fashion. In 2005, I kind of call that my dive off the deep end uh, part in life. And during those five years of, from 2005 to 2010, I got highly addicted to pornography, highly addicted to drinking, highly addicted to smoking cigarettes and cigars. Never, Never got involved with drugs, never was around that scene of drugs but was involved in going to um, clubs, to strip clubs, everything that was not the Christian way that I grew up in, because I, I thought, okay, I see the it looks like the grass is green on the other side. I didn't grow up that way. Let me go explore that side. The, the rock bottom was, there were two kind of rock bottoms, but the biggest rock bottom that finally made me realize, okay, I've got to stop doing this. Is when me and my uh, wife were in the process of planning a wedding, and I was I was working a job, started talking to another another girl there, and one thing led to another. And while we were still dating, I was I, I was I was cheating on on my girlfriend my girlfriend with this other girl. And that came to I, it came to realization that um, when she almost walked away from me and said, "If you do not stop this right now, I'm leaving you, and this is over, and i won't you will not have me in your life anymore and on April seventh of this past year uh, when the pandemic was going on i I took a voluntary layoff from for my job because I just wasn't making any money. I started connecting with people on LinkedIn and I just started sharing my story and telling people, hey, yeah, things are crazy right now. Things are uncertain right now. But there's people that want to listen to you. There's people that wanna help you out. Just start reaching out. You don't have to stay stuck in your head. And ever since I've ever since April 7th, I keep looking back on it thinking. How am I so just at peace through all this? I haven't struggled one moment with mental health. With like I've had some stressful days at work, but beyond that, I haven't struggled one at one moment. Because I found people that I can talk to. I've I've connected with people that struggle with the same thing and I learn from them how they're struggling, how they're getting through it. And it helps me it helps me kind of learn, see what they're doing. I see, okay, they're making it, then I can make. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. I have started my own podcast where people can follow along my story. And I've talked to a lot of people that have dealt with life struggles, life issues, and have some people that want to come, that want to be on my podcast. I just want to encourage more people because who knows where things are gonna go through all this, if it's gonna get worse or when it, if, we, if this is our new normal, that people can know, hey, someone else is out there too. And I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel, I'm just trying to join along with everybody else, say, hey, here's another, here's somebody else that's done it, here's somebody else you can listen to and learn from where they've been. It is encouragement and coffee with David.
1: Y'all know him as the superstar stand-up and blockbuster actor, but did you know that Kevin Hart is also a New York Times best-selling author? And he's back with his second book, The Decision, Overcoming Today's BS for Tomorrow's Success. And you can get it today on Audible. Just for signing up, they're going to give you two free audiobooks and a select-free Audible original to get started. So go to the link in my show notes and sign up for Audible today
0: hey guys i'm frank king i'm the mental health comedian i uh, speak on suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue and i know what you're thinking um wait a minute frank king comedian didn't you write jokes for jay leno for 20 years i did and weren't you on evening at the improv showtimes comedy club network showtimes comedy on the road i was and wait a minute a distant memory, 1989, didn't you lose to a puppet on the original Star Search? Yes, I did.
1: Oh, man, uh, for my listeners, you're going to laugh more at this episode <laughs> than you do normally. There's not a lot of laughing in my episodes. This one's going to be different. So Yes, I um, promise. I am very fortunate that I've been able to – this is now my second chat with, with, with Frank because I appeared on his program. We had a very funny recording. Uh, that ended up turning into about a two-hour coaching session. I was very lucky uh, in, in that respect. So, Frank, what I usually do, I know your story because you were so kind to give it to me, but give me the, the two-minute, ten-minute version, whatever you want to do about your story and what brought you to be the mental health comedian.
0: Yeah, I um, started comedy 1984, April Fool's Day. What I did was I did what I tell comics to say I want to be you know, your coaching client. Okay, here's the deal. Go to an open mic night twice. See how bad everybody there is, you know, is. Uh, and then third time go up. And that's what I did. I was living in San Diego. There's a branch of the comedy store there still there on Pearl in La Jolla. And I went twice. And I thought, I'm at least as funny just walking around. And so third time I went back and did five minutes. I'm sure if I could hear a recording of it, it would make my skin crawl. But that night, it seemed the audience reaction was good. You know, uh, it was about moving from North Carolina where I was born and raised to California because the culture shock, especially back in, in 1980 was, uh, 84 was really, uh, for example, the only joke I remember is, um, I'd never seen guacamole growing up in North Carolina. I mean, the only Mexican food we had was Doritos. Uh, so the, um, I'd never even seen an avocado. So I'm at a cocktail party, and I pick up a chip, and I'm headed for the bowl. And I look down just in time to see that green stuff, and I stop. And the hostess comes over. She goes, Frank, oh, you're from North Carolina. You know, um, you probably never seen that before. It's guacamole. It's good. And I said, yes, I bet it was. The first time somebody ate it. Uh, and that night on stage, in my head, I heard, you are home. My second thought was, you're going to do this for a living. I don't know how to do that. But And had I known, Jay, how difficult it was to make a living doing comedy, I've often threatened to do a keynote called, What Could You Do If You Didn't Know No Better? And because I didn't know no better, I decided I was going to be a comedian. And my first wife decided that if I was going to be a comedian, she was going to be single. (laughs) So uh, she left me, divorced me, whatever, which is one of the nicest things anybody ever did for me. And... My third, fourth TED talk is called "Suicide: The Secret to My Success." Basically, I'm married to this woman—high school sweetheart, college sweetheart—wonderful woman, but just not really for me. Um, We were—we had nothing in common. But you know, you know what they say: opposites attract. She was pregnant, I wasn't. Anyway. So I'm married and miserable. I'm selling insurance, which is what she wanted me to do, which is a great business, but I hated it with a purple passion. And I realized, given my family history of generational depression and suicide, that I was depressed and suicidal. And if I didn't change something in short order, I was going to kill myself. So I realized, wait a minute, I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy if it works. And I think it will. That's great. But if it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. <laughs> that's how I got into comedy. Suicide is truly the secret of my success. And it obviously worked out a year later, 85, about a year and a half later, I won a contest, funniest person in San Diego, won a thousand bucks. And I, and I was able to leverage that publicity to get 10 weeks on the road. Uh, It was was 85. So it was kind of the beginning of the big comedy boom where they were putting week long comedy clubs in medium sized to major cities. And then one horrible one nighters everywhere. And so, I asked my girlfriend, now my wife, of thirty three years, um, if she wanted to come on the road with me. Just come along, and she said yes. So we put everything we couldn't fit into my little tiny Dodge Colt into storage, quit our jobs, took off, and we were on the road for two thousand six hundred and twenty nine nights in a row, nonstop. That's seven years and change.
1: And yet, you're still married.
0: Yeah, that's uh, yeah. You it's one of those things either makes a marriage or destroys a marriage. Because <laughs> you know we were we had no home. We had a post office box and voicemail. And you know if you're in the and Toyota 4Runner, and you're in a 4Runner, and one of you gets mad, well, the only place to go is the back seat. So, uh, but we held it together, and I, I, it was an amazing time. Back then, they used to put us up in what's called the comedy condo, three-bedroom condo. So I not only um, worked with uh, these comics, I spent the week in a condo with them for my wife. It was kind of, kind of like living in a frat house, but um, Dennis Miller, Ellen DeGeneres, Rosie O'Donnell, Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, Adam Sandler, um, Kevin James, uh, Ken Young, I mean, on and on and on and on and on. Seinfeld, when they were just comics. And then um, early 90s, uh, comedy's kind of beginning to wind down, although I was booked a year ahead of clubs. So I got into radio in my old hometown of Raleigh. I called and they said, look, we can't come to contract with the morning guy. Do you want to be the... Second banana. Sure. So I did that for about a year and a half. Took a number one morning show, rock and roll morning show, drove it to number six in 18 months. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't just drive it into the ground. I drove it in the middle earth. Uh, And then when I got done with that, what held the road together was not the week long improv funny bone punchline. It was the horrible beer bar pool hall honky tonk, you know, tell us some jokes we can dance to. Great. Here's a slow one. You can slow dance that held it together and they were gone. They went on to whatever the next big thing was. I made the jump from the barroom to the boardroom from club comedy to corporate comedy, because I always had a clean act, and started doing the rubber chicken circuit after dinner, after lunch. And you know what the difference is between a corporate comic and a club comic? About $3,500 a day plus <laughs> travel. I realized very quickly that that's where the money was. And so um, I did that till, um, till the recession hit, and I never thought, Jay, I would ever say this phrase, the last recession hit, and the bond dropped out of the speaking market. Fell off 80% overnight. My wife and I lost everything into bankruptcy, and that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like, literally. I had time, place, and method. And um, after surviving that, and by the way, I didn't pull the trigger, a friend of mine came up to me after a keynote. He'd never heard me say that out loud. He goes, hey man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? if you want to know why i didn't pull the trigger it's in my first ted talk called a matter of laugh l-a-u-g-h or death the meeting planners speakers bureaus booker said to me, frank you know we love you dearly but we can't pay you five grand plus travel just to be funny anymore clean and funny you got to have something to teach our audience you got takeaways action items when i was in insurance i saw all the great you know the old school motivational guys zig ziglar brian tracy you know and i thought man i could do that if i just had something to teach somebody So after coming that close, um, I got Judy Carter's book, she's a a friend of mine, called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. I went into the book thinking I got nothing. And Judy walks you through this process, she calls it your heart story, you find your heart story. So about halfway through I'm like, oh, I got it. (laughs) I know what I'm gonna talk about. So when I was preparing for that first TEDx talk, and I started talking about depression and suicide, in my community, you know, giving up like rehearsal versions. I realized nobody talks about it. But if you mention it, dear God, everybody's got a story. And I thought, I think there's a market here because not that many people are speaking on it other than clinicians. Not that many guys, especially, are willing to come out and go, look, I have major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. I'm nuttier than a squirrel turd. And so, you know, being vulnerable on stage. So I did the TED Talk began to rebrand with the speakers bureaus and the meeting planners and I've done five Ted talks. I've been selected for seven, but two of them I couldn't make because of conflicts with paying gigs. Um, my last one, number five in Durango, Colorado was called mental health and the orgasm, treat your depression (laughs) single-handedly. Yeah. Um, I love my iPhone, but it's my second favorite handheld device. (laughs) Yeah. And it was my favorite. Oh, dear God. It was um, it was just one long, you know, D-I-C-K joke with some science tossed in. You know what I mean? Is this a, a G-rated podcast? <laughs> no, it's it's labeled explicit on all the podcasts. Oh, good. Yeah, you're good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I'm standing there and I said, you know, um, I didn't have any PowerPoint slides because it's on orgasm and masturbation. <laughs> So I, I did my little thing about the phone. I go, look, you know, the committee, the curation team asked me to have PowerPoint slides. And I said, where am I going to get those? Pornhub? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the money shot. Um, Pearl necklace. Oh, ZZ Top fans. Good to see you. Um, and it, it goes on from there. And at one point I say, look, um, turns out men who masturbate more than 21 times a month, have a 20% lower incidence of prostate cancer. And I said, so at this moment in time, I am immortal. Uh, And The curation team said to me, well, Frank, you need an action item to go along with that fact and figure that 20%. I go, are you saying that I have to encourage men to whack on? I go, okay, boys, just to keep the curation team happy. Here's my, here's my action item. Beat it like it owes you money. And the audience is just going nuts and my favorite joke through the whole thing and my wife hated it she goes don't do that I go, i'm gonna do it it's gonna kill uh the joke is i stopped right in the middle and as my mother would say apropos of nothing i said to the audience do you know why they call an orgasm an orgasm They're looking at me and i go because nobody can spell <laughs> and it killed and i said to the audience oh thank god you like that my wife hated that joke hated that joke so i brought down the fourth wall that's how i got here um and depression, suicide run in my family. My grandmother died by suicide. My great aunt, my mother, obviously I came very close. Everybody in my family except one cousin who has neither mental illness nor the family's high cholesterol. And I hit him with a passion. <laughs> uh, just one guy. He's 75 years old. He's a man in my family, which is amazing because most of the men in my family between heart disease and mental illness have the life expectancy of a middle-aged fruit fly. So, um, yeah i'm on I'm living on borrowed time I'm upside down alone i I've had two aortic valve replacements a double bypass a heart attack and at three cents I had a heart attack in the woods a half mile from the car and I've got t-Mobile so I didn't have cell service and I'm still here
1: <laughs> well uh I'm glad you are um, you have made a career of talking about things that that 99% of the population either A, doesn't want to talk about or B, will actively try to stop you from talking about. That is what stigma is. It's around everything that you talk about from yep. mental health to orgasm. I mean, all of it is <laughs> stigma, stigma barred.
0: Well, uh, first of all, um, I, in my TEDx talk on orgasm, I said, you know, people, the people don't talk about mental health and you know, mental illness and depression, depression and suicide. Uh, but if you, if you, if you mention it, everybody's got a story guess what? Uh, people don't talk about masturbation, or orgasm. And if you mention it, everybody's got someplace else to be. Uh, <laughs> it actually, it actually has a more stigma than, uh, and the thing is they had a survey, this, um, adult toy company did a survey and, and, you know, it was an anonymous survey, but 76% of women in the U S admitted they did masturbate and 94% of men. And my joke was, and the rest of them are just lying. So yeah, I think the, um, there's a stigma you know, surrounding mental illness. There's a whole separate stigma surrounding the thoughts of suicide. So it's like a, it's like a double whammy. Well, you know, after having a barrel of gun in my mouth, I really, I, and I pretty much gave up my pride and self-respect in the bankruptcy in 2010. So I'm, I'm willing to, to suffer the slings and arrows of stigma to keep people alive.
1: But so, and and that's incredible. And I love that about you. And it's one of the things that drew me to your work, but it's more, how do you find people willing to go there with you? You know, you talked about the 15th time somebody was willing to let you give your, your talk about an orgasm, but even your topic, your uh, discussing, uh, discussing mental health and, and, you know suicide as you said that's a double whammy and a lot of people in our field still
0: don't want to talk about that no that's that is correct well but I what i discovered was and i and and um it took a friend of mine yeah sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees uh he said i said frankly i know what your memoir is going to be called i go do tell he goes starting the conversation on suicide i go that that you know what? Looking back, ninety percent of the people that hire me—that's the exact phrase they use when I arrive. We just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide. So I guess I'm like that. Um, you know, they go, the goat they stake out in the in the field <laughs> to attract the lion. I'm just like, eh, eh. <laughs> yeah. What it takes is somebody, an organization, realizing that the only way to bring the rate down is somebody's got to mention it now we've got to find somebody who's either naive enough or stupid enough to stand up and go hey solutions are, uh suicide's a solution for me problems large and small there
1: is a lot of need for that and it, it takes finding as you said the niche of, of people willing to give you that the platform and the opening to, to do that
0: yeah and occasionally i get pushed back um you know uh, as a comic uh, you know, uh, on, on social media or something, I can't believe you're joking about mental illness and suicide. And I write back, well, in comedy, you can joke about any group to which you belong and I'm double qualified. <laughs> so I get a little pushback that way. And then people say, is there anything funny about, anything funny about suicide? And I go, no, nothing funny about it, but there, you know, there are humorous moments. I mean, there is humor in just about everything if you know how to find it and you pick the proper target. And I'm, I'm all, almost always the target in my stories. It's my condition. I own it. Yeah, I guess it, I think because I've my arms around it, and it's you know it doesn't define me, but it is part of me, and it, it it's just the way I'm wired. Oh, I was on campus, uh, University of Montana, Billings, and the uh, young two young men are driving me to. I arranged ahead of time because it was the the event was going to be open to the public. So I said, hey, man. Uh, to the meme planner, look, let's do a newspaper article, let's do some radio. Will the NPR station have me on? Sure, local radio station have me on. Um, So they drive me around to the interviews, kids talking, and he says, "Uh, listen, you know, comics coming to college campuses nowadays, you know, some of them just won't do it because everybody gets offended, like Chris Rock and Dennis Miller and Bill Maher. Are you worried about offending somebody? And I said, well, if I was a comic and I was on the comic track in colleges, I would be worried that I would, you know, offend somebody, but here's the deal. I'm on campus to prevent suicide, save lives. So, you know, my philosophy is boys, what? Fuck them. <laughs> uh, you're paying me mm-hmm. for my opinion, which is the great thing about being a speaker and not a comedian. I've said things on stage. I've never said fuck it on stage, but I've said things on stage in a corporate setting as a speaker. Like I said, one time, uh, more than once, somebody said, you know, if you, um, if you exercise, it'll relieve your depression. Why don't Why don't you exercise? It'll relieve your depression. And I said to him, Why don't you bite my ass? Um, I would never say that at a corporate comedy gig, but you know, as my as myself, you know, um, yeah. What are they gonna do? Kill me? You don't
1: tiptoe around these topics. It's not like you're. Oh, excuse me. Let me talk about this. And and there's there's a, an, an ease at which you talk about these things. It kind of makes the audience feel like, oh, we can
0: be comfortable around this. Well, it's um, it's part vulnerability. I re- I just finally read Brene's book, Brene Brown's book on yeah. I and people said hey, Renee, "You got to read Brene Brown." And I thought, How good could she be? So I read the book on vulnerability, and I'm like, This, you know, getting chills about every third page, and because uh, she's all about vulnerability. So I'm on stage being vulnerable, which apparently is very powerful, and you know, I come out of the shoot by saying, you know, why, why a comedian? Well, cause my family, it's a good, a comedian's a good choice. Speak truth to power, mental illness. And I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like <laughs> at which point the, the normal people snap back <laughs> and the millennial people lean in because they realize, Oh dear God. I had a woman at uh, Lynchburg college, young co-ed came up after my show. She goes, can I give you a hug? Okay. This okay. is in the middle of me too. like that the heart of the Me Too movement. I am thinking everybody in this room has a camera, would we'll take video. I could see the headline tomorrow in a paper, you know, speaker gropes co-ed. So I gave her a very brotherly hug where I pulled my pelvis back as far as I could. And I said to her, are you a hugger? She goes, no, no. i go, like, well, what was with the hug? She goes, well, I've been in therapy for two years. And the woman who's my therapist is good. I mean, she's got the, you know, the stuff on the wall. She's got good training. She knows, you know, she go, but she has no contacts. And she goes, I'm sitting in the back of the room, 15 minutes into your little keynote. (laughs) It occurs to me, he's inside my fucking head. She goes, that 45 minutes did more for me than two years of therapy with her.
1: I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that. And that's something that I love that people who you know doing this in a public way, like you and I and a lot of my guests are, we all have those stories. And it makes me think like, if all it takes is being vulnerable and telling our story, why aren't more people doing this?
0: Well, you know, I've got a friend who's in the uh, in the dental business. Um, she's got a TEDx called uh, "Skidding Across Rock Bottom," which I added the, the subtitle. Uh, it's not how hard you hit; it's how high you bounce. <laughs> That's good. But she she bought a practice, and and just it was just a clusterfuck. And 14 months, and it was just a mess. And she, but she was too proud, shy to tell anybody. So she finds herself standing on a stool in her garage with a noose around her neck, and the phone rings. Now, in the TEDx, I told her first of all, you put the stool on stage far enough away so they know it's not for water. You know, like know, I set a bottle down, but don't address it until you get up on it, and and then you're like this, miming your okay. And then then from off stage, a phone rings. So you pull it out like it's your phone and let it ring four or five times because in the audience's head, they're going pick up the fucking phone. (laughs) So she got out of dentistry. Uh, she actually had a physical injury later, which meant she couldn't practice the kind of fine dentistry that she had practiced. And so she took a year off and, uh, she's a professional dancer. She opened a dance school. And I said, you need to tell people that. Well, you know, and I couldn't practice the anymore. I did what anybody would have done, open a dance school, <laughs> as you would. Um, and then she went back online on social media and she was, in the beginning, she was inauthentic. She was putting forth the image she thought she should. And at some point she became more and more her authentic self and she kept getting feedback from people who goes you know the thing I enjoy about your social media posts is your authentic, authentic, authentic. Life. So now her business is she helps dentists, dental professionals, be their authentic self on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. So I think if you can if you can get to the point where you can be your authentic self, the power of vulnerability plus being authentic with nothing to hide. I I just think that's, I mean, it takes a little nerve to do that because you're exposing yourself, but again, that's the vulnerable, that's that vulnerability. And Brene Brown says, and I've said this many times different ways, but she said it more elegantly and eloquently, and now I quote her, when I'm on stage, and I'm expressing what I've been going, what I've gone through and go through with mental illness. She says, I am so comfortable in my dark, I have no problem sitting with you in yours. So I'm like, boom, (laughs) (laughs) Mike, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I thought that's it. That's yeah. I'm, I'm so comfortable that I can I can talk. My goal, Jay, is to have other people that comfortable talking about it. I want to make talking about depression thoughts, suicide as, as comfortable as talking about the weather sports where, you know, it, people don't shudder when you, you know, you bring it up. Um, and every now and then I like to screw around with, uh did I tell you the story about the Uber driver? No. Okay. Every now and then I like to screw around with neurotypical people. Because you know, people go, "How you doing?" and everybody almost everybody almost always goes, "Living the dream." Yeah. You know, blah blah blah. Okay, but I was really tired, and when I get tired, of the little editor my head goes to sleep. And I've done two three hour suicide prevention CE courses one day in Sacramento, and I crawl into the Uber. Nice young man, and our eyes lock in the rearview mirror. And so I'm just I'm not going to put on I'm not going to you know I'm not going to I've got my game face off now. So he goes, "Hey man, how you doing?" And I can see his eyes in the mirror and I go, I'm depressed and suicidal. How about you? <laughs> and he goes, what am I supposed to say to that? I said, do you really want to know? He goes, yeah. I said, you're supposed to ask me, do I have a plan? And so a couple of seconds, do you um, have a plan? He says, And this is priceless. And he goes, does it involve Uber? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was on Instagram the other day and I put the same things. It was an Instagram. It said, uh, just connected with him. It said, Hey, how you doing? I thought, well, you know, maybe this has been, that's how hackers often start the yeah. conversation. So I thought maybe I've been hacked. He's been hacked. So I wrote uh, "Depressed and suicidal. How about you? And I get a note back. Uh, that's great to hear. I'm doing well also. <laughs> so then I wrote in, um, either you're amazingly insensitive <laughs> Or that was a robo answer. And he wrote back, Oh, I'm sorry, that was a robo answer. And what I was waiting for was, Are you really, you know, him to say, Are you really depressed? But no, they just said, Oh, I'm sorry, that was a robo answer. (laughs) So I thought, Okay, asshole. So I I printed the whole thing on LinkedIn, the whole conversation, put, you know, the guy's name was Jolly Jeffrey. So apparently, Jolly Jeffrey doesn't really give a shit how I feel. (laughs) But yeah, sometimes you just want to say out loud and I tell people in my, in my speech, you need people in your life. When they ask you how you're doing, you can flat fucking tell. Yeah. My workout partners like that. He said to me, you know, Frank, how you doing? I go, I'm wretchedly depressed. He goes, what does it look like? He's not saying you should do this or you should do that. He just wants to know. You know. Yeah. I said, well, do you remember when you were 18 and a young man and every other sex, I'm sorry, every other thought you had was about <laughs> sex. He goes, yeah, I remember those days. What are you, what's your every other thought now? going back to bed watching Netflix (laughs) because that's exactly my bed talks to me yeah I mean calls me come on back Ozark second season (laughs) so yeah I've just become so comfortable and and you know the the more it it affected people the more people who found comfort in that like the people who find out I have chronic suicidal ideation for your listeners That means for me, suicide is always an option as a solution. problems large and small. And when I say small, and I say this in my keynote, a car broke down. I had three thoughts, get it fixed, buy a new one. I could just kill myself. (laughs) Option C is always, or just kill yourself. Uh, And I've had it for so long. It just, you know, it's like Muzak. Sometimes I hear it, sometimes I don't. But the thing about that is every keynote I've ever given except one, at least one person, sometimes more have come up afterwards. They have that condition. They didn't know it had a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak. And when they realize they're not alone, the relief is palpable. I had a woman come up after college. She goes, you made me weep. I go, how did I make you weep? She goes, you know the story about your car, get it fixed by you and just kill yourself. I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I thought I was some kind of freak. And I heard you say it out loud. And I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone and I wept. I've become inured to it. Is that the right word? I've just numb, numb. I just don't, it's well, again, it's for me, it's like talking about the weather. It's, you know, it's, uh, I mean, but it does, it does occasionally shock the neurotypical person, you know,
1: before we, we go to the next one, let's, let's stop and let my listeners know where they can find you and where they can follow you.
0: Oh, uh, I'll probably be at the end of a rope at some <laughs> point. Um, <laughs> are you really? No, I'm not. No, I'm joking. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Somebody here in town says, have you ever ever been to that bridge upriver? And I go, yes. As a matter of fact, I thought about jumping off that. (laughs) Thementalhealthcomedian.com. And if you just type that in without the dot com, just type in The Mental Health Comedian. It's my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Hey,
1: everyone. Just a quick break in the interview to remind you that there are a couple links in the show notes. I want you to check out number one, the podcast survey. Thank you. We had a couple of responses right away the first week. That's awesome. Makes me super happy. Keep that up. It'll be up for another couple weeks, so check that out. Number two is the Patreon. It's in there as well. You can find all that info in the show notes as well as the links to all of the ways to contact me, all that good stuff. Give it a look. Check it out. Please do the survey. It means a lot to me. All right, back to the episode. You could be, you know, that kind of guy who you're, you're doing this, you're, you're speaking out and you're doing a lot of good with it, but you've decided to go a step farther. You've written the books and you coach now. What What was the motivation behind, I mean, like I
0: said, you didn't have to do that, but you just wanted to do it. What, what was the motivation there? Well, in the book, I got a call from a woman that I'd taken a suicide prevention class from called Working Minds. Uh, She called me and said, look, uh, my friend Sarah and I are going to do a book on men's mental health because there were, Sarah went looking, the other author, for a book on men's mental health at Barnes and Noble brick and mortar and Barnes and Noble online. I couldn't find it. So she thought, well, there's a a vacuum in the market. So she got together with Sally, Spencer Thomas, uh, and Sally called me. She goes, Frank, we'd like you to make it funny and add the car metaphors because it looks like a car owner's manual. Don't you wish the man in your life had a check engine light, goes off send them to the mental mechanic, mental mechanic, puts them up on the rack, goes, Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're two quarts low on serotonin. So I said, look, I'll make it funny. I'll put the metaphors in, but I want to be co-author And I want to, I want to uh, voice it for audible. Cause I took five years of voiceover in LA and I never really got much chance to do anything with it. So that was, and eight out of 10 people who die by suicide in the U S at this moment are men. It's an endangered species. Uh, I created a t-shirt, uh, I can send you the artwork. On the front of it, back in the 70s, a big movement called Save the Whales. And usually the t-shirt had a, had the whale going in the water with a flute. All you see is the flute going down. So I created a t-shirt where it's a guy's feet going into the water, and it says here, Save the Males, because they're an endangered species. It's, and it's going to get worse uh, with the COVID, I do believe. They call them deaths of despair. So that's why I, I signed on to do this. We we're going to do one book, but it became a 1,000 pages, and now it's four books. People kept coming to me and saying, you know, would you help me get into speaking or would you help me get a TEDx? And I thought, my business coach said, look, Frank, this TEDx thing, you're going to have to start charging. You're going to build a website, and I did, called yourtedxcoach.com. If you go there, there's a free PDF, uh, six things you can do to kill your chances to get a TED Talk, and you're going to start charging for it. And a friend of mine was paying $4,800 to get a TED Talk, 4800 bucks. I said, well, I know I'm going to raise my prices, Uh, so I did, and what I do is, um, and I've got a dozen clients, and every one of them has got a TED Talk except one so far, and one of them got two, had to pick between the two. Um, My TEDx thing is, um, I work with you an hour a week on Zoom until you get a TED Talk, or we both die trying, so it's like a till death do us part deal. You know, we're in, and, and, and if you die and your adult children want to do a that doc, you can will me to them like Packers tickets.
1: That's awesome. And, and you've really, it seems like you've hit a stride here in on your second career, if comedy or third, if you want to count insurance comedy and, yeah. and and this one. Is this the kind of thing that you wish you could go back and start this passion earlier? Are you, are you, do you oh. love that you, you know, got to have that life in comedy?
0: Uh, You know, I, I, I'd hate to trade all of that seven years with all those wonderful, smart, funny, you know, people. Foxworthy and those guys, on White. But somebody asked me the other day, if you go back and change one thing, I would go back to 90, no, 84, 84, 85. A Speakers Bureau person said to me, you know, you can do comedy and speak. They're not mutually exclusive. And I'm like, no, I'm a comic. I'm not a speaker. If I had taken her advice and done both, I'd be living in a much bigger house. Was it a pride thing? No, it was just that I didn't see myself, you know, speakers seemed kind of cheesy. Uh, I went to the National Speakers Association local meeting and everybody was there to make a living and a difference, make a difference. A matter of fact, I was famous in that group. My tagline was, make a living, not a difference. Secretly jealous that I didn't have a message and cast about for years to figure out. And I took putting a gun in my mouth to figure out, oh, 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 oh. Hmm. Yes, if I could go back in time and, and develop those two careers, because my jokes, I was always a clean comic. I dressed up, you know, uh, I, I would have gotten much farther ahead. But, you know, would I have been prepared? I didn't know about my family history until 2012, when a, a cousin of mine, 10 years older than me, older than I. Because the family had invented a myth about the, when my mother and I found my great aunt had died of suicide. The family, I had blocked the whole thing out. My family created a myth that when, I don't know, is it okay to tell the story? If you're easily triggered, you might want to tune out for a minute. Um, My mom and I went over to my great aunt's house looking for her because my mom couldn't get her on the phone because my grandmother had died. She'd used an old gas stove, blew out the pilot pilot light, close the doors and windows. So my great aunt, um, what she'd done was, she had decided to die. She crawled inside the old lock type refrigerator. And once you're in there, there's no getting out. And so my mother couldn't figure out why all the food, butter, eggs, milk, cheese on the counter, so she, with me holding on to her skirt tail at four years old, she goes over to the refrigerator, opens the door. Now my great aunt had changed her mind and tried to claw her way out. So you can imagine what she looked like. And on top of that, when my mom opened the door, my great aunt fell on top of me and pinned me to the floor. So I had no memory, but my cousin, when I said, yeah, when, when my mom opened the refrigerator, my great aunt was in there with her hands folded in prayer and he goes, bullshit, the old bitch fell out on you. And it was like, <laughs> it all came rushing back. Of course the joke is, so I said to me, have you ever been impacted by a suicide? And I go, yeah, the old bitch pinned me to the floor. <laughs> but you know, that's how comics are. So
1: are you seeing Progress, that was my next question, is that you've now been doing this for a long time. Are you seeing more doors open, not only for you, someone like you to come in and start the conversation, but for the conversations to continue?
0: You know what, what it's like? It's like alcoholism was 60 years ago, 70 years ago. There were, Alcoholics Anonymous were anonymous for a reason, because people didn't think it was a disease. They thought it was a moral failing, you know, a character flaw. And so mental illness is kind of right there, I think, where people still, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. How bad could it be? Turn your, you know, turn that frown upside down. So we're just getting past that to where people are realizing, look, it's organic for a lot of people. Uh, You know, it's it's not something they can help. It's not a character flaw. You know, they, they can't get out of bed because, not physically, but they just mentally can't wrap their minds around, you know, they just can't drag themselves to the shower. So it's improving, not as fast as I would like. I'm a little worried because just read a study they're expecting 75,000 more suicides nice. thanks to the pandemic and on top of the 47,000 they had last year. So the upside of this is I think a lot of neuronormal people because they're at home and at loose ends without any structure and they are having trouble dragging themselves out of bed in the morning. They got a little more empathy for those of us who live with that every day. As a matter of fact, I've I've been on innumerable webinars, podcasts, radio shows. I have a keynote called Social Distancing and Staying Sane. Don't worry about your mentally ill friends. Because as a mentally ill person, I've got a safe care plan. I've got techniques. You know, I have a schedule. I don't worry about things I can't control. But I've all that practice, all those years. So the pandemic is just just another day (laughs) in the life of a mentally ill person. So I've been able to share those techniques with people who are neuronormal to help them get through this uh, and remain, you know, sane and, and hopefully avoid situational depression. But you know, they do, I tell them, look, if you get depressed, get evaluated, get on medication. It's not for life. You know, it's just till the end of the COVID, a couple of months, and then taper off. You know, it's 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 not unusual. There's where I think there's there's a danger of, of a lot of stigma is neuronormal people who've never been depressed. And they don't understand what they're going through, why they feel this way, or how the hell to get out of it. And then they think, well, maybe I'm depressed. Should I see a psychiatrist, a psychologist? Oh, no, Christ! That uh, you know the stigma attached to that. And some occupations, uh, airline pilots, military, physicians, could be career limiting. Mm-hmm. Come out like that. I've got a physician friend. I got help to get a TED Talk. She uh, filled out an application for medical school. And then they ask her, had she ever been on uh, depressed or whatever, and on a laundry list of medications. And she had, but she didn't put it on there. She knew she would, she believed she would be turned down. So fast forward three months, she finds herself standing on a bridge about ready to jump because she's depressed. But that was a good 20, 30 years ago. So hopefully it's gotten a little better since. So last
1: question before we go to the final ones. If someone is listening to this and wants to start having this conversation with a loved one with a close friend but they're afraid they don't know the gonna respond the right way what do you say to, to that person about how to have that how to start having that conversation
0: well i would back it up upstream a little bit and say look um if they are exhibiting signs of depression like uh, eat too much can't eat sleep too much can't sleep um not taking joy in social activities they used to take joy in um letting their personal hygiene go you know not clean clothes aren't quite as clean hair is kind of dirty that's a big sign, symptom of depression. Uh, so if, you, if that happens and you're, you're observing this, then then you have to, I believe, ask them, you know, are you depressed? And be persistent. If, if your gut tells you they're depressed, go with your gut. And if they say they're depressed, then ask them flat out, are you having thoughts of suicide? And if if you can't ask the question, find somebody who can. And if they say yes, then you ask, do you have a plan? And if they have a plan it's detailed, you need to get them on the phone with a suicide prevention lifeline. Or if they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone, the volunteer will do what they can, get the phone in the hand of the person in crisis. If they're in immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, got to dial 911. Uh, if the plan is kind of amorphous, you know, just a you know, generalized, I don't know, I might hang myself, my way to, Um, my next question would be, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, and this is the important question, I think, most important, well, tell me why not. Make them give voice to, to the reason they're going to stick around. Uh, so the 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 uh, other question farther upstream is: I have a friend, I think they're depressed. What should I say? And I, I generally advise: don't say anything. Just arrange to get together in a in a private, you know, relatively private space, whatever, wherever they're comfortable, and just listen. Just you know, let them talk. Uh, actively listen. Don't have another appointment. Backed up to the you know. Don't be doing this. Yeah, yeah, kill yourself. Got it. Listen, I got to get, get the car detailed. Because a friend of mine says, a friend of mine says, just co-sign their BS. Just you know, sign off. Oh dear God, oh Lord, I can't believe that. <laughs> and don't shit all over them. You should do this. You should do that. Just listen. Uh, but if you hear something, you know that that sounds dangerous, or you observe something that appears dangerous, or you're reading their Facebook timeline and it's like, I've had people send me their, you know, my my college roommate. Would you take a look at his timeline? And tell me if this is dangerous. And I took a look at it, and I oh dear God, <laughs> yeah. You need to do you need to do some, and I gave him some advice on what to do, because here's the deal: Eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to step in. Eight out of ten. I myself wasn't I wasn't I wasn't ambivalent in the least. Uh, Nine out of ten give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt. Nine out of ten, either verbal, nonverbal, you know, uh, direct, indirect, or behavioral. So again, they want somebody to notice and go, "Hey man, how you doing? I'm fine. No, 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 really. How you doing? Let's go to my office and chat about this because something's off. You know, and it may be that you know, we have a new baby. I've been up three nights, haven't any sleep. That's why I'm this way, which is okay. Just, I just was worried, um, but at least you asked a question because anybody can stop a suicide if you're willing to step out of your comfort zone, step in and ask a question. Because again, if eight out of 10 people are ambivalent, nine out of 10 give you hints, those people want somebody to go, hey, stop. We need to chat.
1: I love that answer, and there's there's a quote that, that I love that I think actually came up. You and I both said this when we were talking the first time, which is I'd rather spend two hours talking to you today than two hours attending your funeral tomorrow. I, yeah, I, I love exactly. That
0: quote. Yeah, and that goes hand in glove with um, look. I'm so comfortable in my dark. I got no problem mm-hmm. sitting with you in your That's right. Yeah, you're not going to scare me. And I tell normal people, look, when you get together, you be prepared. A, be in a good, be in a good physical, mental state. Don't be tired. Don't be sick, because you may embrace yourself not to scream running from the room <laughs> because you may hear some things that are really disturbing. Uh, so, you know, just be ready for whatever comes up.
1: Give my listeners one more chance to find out where they can follow you and, and contact you if they're interested in all that you're doing.
0: TheMentalHealthComedian.com or just type in the Mental Health Comedian If you want to do a TEDx talk and the first half of an hour of coaching on that's always free, um, yourtedxcoach.com. And here's my phone number, 858-405-5653, 858-405-5653. I put it on the screen every time I do a keynote, and I tell people, look, if you suicidal, call the lifeline. If you're just having a really shitty day, call a crazy person, and that's my number.
1: Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, oh, man, I just I don't even know where to begin? Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. They'll even distribute for you, so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to Anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. Are you ready to take your hemp experience to a whole new level? Because if so, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Maid. Their puff line of smokable flour is unreal. They meticulously source each strain from select partner farms to ensure only the highest quality product in the marketplace. When it comes to the entourage effect, Nothing top-strain specific flower. It delivers the full range of all the amazing effects of CBD. I can tell you because I use it myself. With 0.7 grams of premium full flower inside of each pre-roll, you'll be ready to maximize your personal summit whenever you smoke. So check out Mountain Made today and grab a puff. They're federally compliant with less than 0.3% THC, which means they ship nationwide. All right, I'm going to grab a puff, and let's get back to the episode. We have come to the end of another episode. Thank you for coming along, as always. I hope you took as much from Frank's honest and vulnerable words on suicide as I did. I hope you wrote down his number. I hope you wrote down where to find him. Uh, Frank is so open and and so willing to share. He will chat with anyone. I mean, don't think because this is a a successful guy that he is, you know, not down to have a conversation because that's not it at all. As always, you can find the links for him, for David, for the podcast survey, for the Patreon, all of my links, all of that stuff is in the show notes. Without further ado, we're going to go towards the ending of this episode. This episode is dedicated to a personal hero of mine. Six years ago on Tuesday, Robin Williams took his own life. And I think it's appropriate, considering we're talking about suicide awareness and personal demons and all that kind of stuff this week. Robin is a big hero to many of us in the recovery community, as someone who battled his issues with substance misuse, in the mental health community, as someone who you know very clearly struggled with his own mental health. A quick personal story, when I was in the long-term care facility in Massachusetts, I may have told the story before, but it's my Robin Williams connection story. I've been a huge fan of his my entire life. <laughs> there are pictures of me as a kid with the, as a, as like a six year old with the genie, uh, stuffed animal. That was my dude. But when I was in the long term care facility, his last special came out. And, you know, like I said, he's such a huge hero to so many of us in this community. And a, a friend of mine there and I rented one of the rooms, asked the, management group to spring for HBO, and they did for that night so that we could get a group together to watch him. And, you know, for that night, we were not in this long-term care facility. We were somewhere else. We were enjoying seeing someone that we identified with up on stage. You know, obviously, we didn't know then that it would be his last. We didn't know that he would lose his battle just a few years later. And looking back, it's a very special moment for me because of all of that in hindsight. Some of you know me in person. Some of you don't. I have a Robin Williams dedication tattoo <laughs> on my right arm. It's the genie from Aladdin. Uh, on top, it says Carpe Diem. And on the bottom, it says Chief. Uh, Carpe Diem, obviously, from Dead Poets Society and Chief from... My favorite performance of his, uh, Goodwill Hunting. Big, big impact on my life, Robin Williams. So this episode is dedicated to him. I'm doing this out of order today. Your good egg. I'm just going to do it first since we are talking about this. But your good egg is go appreciate him this week. He did so much that was not what we saw in the movies. Besides being a frequent advocate for these topics, he was a huge advocate for homeless ness and and doing something to help the homeless population he was a very kind person and and he did a lot of great things there's a couple of wonderful documentaries get inside or come inside my mind go watch that one if you can there's a new one out this week about his final days that's going to be a struggle to watch for me i'm going to do it but it's going to be a struggle to watch and just go watch clips of him on on comedy shows he was the kind of guy who was always the person people turned to if they needed Someone funny. You know, he was. If you search for this, it's easy to find. There's a lot of moments where it's like something happens, and the first guest is Robin Williams because these hosts knew we need to find a way to laugh, and we're going to bring in Robin Williams to do that. He was a consummate performer and a wonderful human being. So go appreciate him this week on the sixth anniversary of his death. In his honor, the card pack brought to you by Blurt as always. The card pack we're using today is the You Are Enough cards, because he frequently talked about that. You know, we call it imposter syndrome in the workplace, but we all struggle with this. The How do we know that we're enough? And Robin was very open about his struggles with that. So in that, in that vein, in his honor, we're using the uh, You Are Enough card pack this week. All right, so this one's for Robin Williams. Rather than play compliment ping pong, accept the compliments as the gift it was intended to be. That's wonderful. That And that's so true. That's something that a lot of us struggle with is we hear someone say something kind to us and we immediately want to shoot back something to them, which is good, too. I mean, tell them, tell people how they make you feel, but also sit with the the compliment they gave you. It's It's tough to take a compliment sometimes. And it's something that leads to people feeling like they're not enough because instead of internalizing, instead of letting those words sink in, we immediately shoot back with something of our own. So do both. Sit with it for a minute. Say thank you. That was very kind. And by the way, you know, I like this about you or whatever the case is. Keep reaching out. I want to hear from you. If you were a big Robin Williams fan, let's let's chat this week. And, and you know, thank you to everyone for doing the surveys. Thank you for, for supporting me on Patreon. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for liking, reviewing, all the stuff. Show your empathy this week. Show your love. Be vulnerable and choose your struggle.